Outside, should I run and hide? How do I take my company worldwide? Do you love the law? Did you watch Hee Haw? What's the weirdest thing that you ever saw? What's it like in court? Favorite sport? Can you help with my book report? Is my hair too long? Am I right or wrong? And do you mind if I sing along to anything? Ask Alan anything in the world. All right, very good. Welcome to this episode of Ask Alan, the podcast. I'm Alan Crone, CEO of the Crone Law Firm, and I am here with uh, Holly Whitfield of the I Love Memphis blog, um, and she does love Memphis. Is that right, Holly? I do. <laughs> hey, good morning. I do love Memphis. <laughs> good, good. Well, thank you for coming on the show. I'm really looking forward to this. I've never met you, which I can't, uh, can't believe I, our paths have not crossed. Um, but I've always been a big fan of the blog and uh, uh, I'm just excited to talk to you about uh, you and the blog on the, the show today. Yeah, thank you. I can't believe we haven't met either. It's probably one of those cases where we've been in the same room or in the same place, just passed by each other, but didn't know. <laughs> yes, just passing in the night. Um, well, very good. Um, uh, tell me a little bit about uh, about you. Were you were you born and raised in Memphis? So, believe it or not, I was not born and raised in Memphis. I'm actually a transplant. Um, I definitely consider myself a Memphian now. After 15 years, August will be 15 years that I've lived here. So, I grew up in South Mississippi in Hattiesburg. Uh, and that's about four and a half hours south from Memphis. And I graduated from high school and decided to come to the University of Memphis. Um, so it was a great weekend for me, football wise. But uh, go Tigers. <laughs> yeah, go Tigers. Um, so I went to school there and I studied architecture to start out, which is people are sometimes surprised to hear. But that school has a great architecture program, actually, and that's kind of what brought me to Memphis. And through that program, I really learned a lot about the city. And it was kind of, I think, a different experience than some transplants and some students have where they are not necessarily out hitting the streets or learning about urban planning or the city as much. But through the first few semesters that I was in that program, it really helped me be um, get a great introduction to the city. And then I realized sort of what I knew all along, which was that I was always going to be a writer. Um, I've always been writing stories, writing newsletters, writing anything um, since I was a small child, really. So I switched and studied graphic design and writing again at the University of Memphis. And then it just went from there. I was really lucky to get a job in 2009 um, when a lot of my peers were, you know, that was a t bad time for uh, for jobs um, for college graduates, but I just kind of worked my way up. I worked at the Commercial Appeal. I worked at an ad agency. Um, I was a server in multiple restaurants in Memphis where I kind of got an introduction to the food scene and the kind of became a foodie myself. And so in 2013, when the first I Love Memphis blogger, Carrie Crawford, um, decided to move on for another opportunity, they were looking for somebody else. And a friend of a friend of a friend said, hey, Holly, you might be interested in this. We're always asking you what to do and where to eat anyways. So you, you should think about this. And I laughed in their face. <laughs> I thought that was crazy. Um, 
I was familiar with the blog. I had actually interviewed Carrie through my work at the Commercial Appeal. And so I was, you know, I saw her as like this amazing figure, which she is and was, but I was like, there's no way I'm not, that's not for me. I'm not in the public eye or anything like that. And, but I talked to a few more friends and every single person that knew me <laughs> was basically like, no, you should go check it out and see what it's like. And next thing I knew, I was taken over the I Love Memphis blog. So it was definitely a surprise for me and it's been amazing. Well, uh, we're glad that you did. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> well, let me go back to the architecture thing because like George Costanza, I've always wanted to uh, pretend I was an architect. Um, what, uh, what do you think is the most architecturally interesting feature of Memphis? Oh, well, I tend to think now, I mean, we always talk about that we have not saved so many historic buildings and that is true and that's an issue. However, there are some historic buildings that we have saved and that we have adaptively reused to use their term and those are the most interesting pieces to me. Um, Crosstown Concourse, a former Sears distribution center still amazes me to this day. I mean, I didn't grow up you know, knowing about the building, but coming in and seeing it go from this abandoned eyesore to now a place that's a hub of so much activity in Memphis. That's really interesting to me. Like imagine what an Amazon inside of an Amazon warehouse is now with conveyor um, versus what they completely gutted and redid to make it a new home now. So I like that. Um, Hotel Chiska is another one. A lot of these places downtown that we're not totally getting rid of, we're kind of keeping parts of them. That's the most interesting to me. Anytime we can keep something that shows a piece of our history, I, I'm usually on board for it. Yeah, Memphis has a, um, uh, I don't know if controversial is the right word, but just a uh, uh, kind of love-hate relationship with its architecture. And, you know, they, it's, we've gone through periods where we've saved a lot of things. Uh, the, a friend of mine, when I was, when I was younger, uh, was a, he was a member of the city council, charter member of the city council. His name was Bob James. And Bob used to tell the story that when he was on the council, uh, they wanted to, through urban renewal, they wanted to tear down Union Station, which they ultimately did because as you know, we don't have a Union Station, but it was um, kind of, I guess, Southeast of Central Station. And it was a gorgeous kind of pink marble uh, edifice. And he, he said, you know, I tried to save it. And everybody laughed at me. He says, you know, if they tried to tear it down five years later, they would never would have been able to do it. Yeah. So, um, in the 60s, 50s and 60s, we really bought into the federal urban renewal uh, program, which is one explanation why we don't have a lot of, uh, of those older buildings. But lately, we, we have gone the other direction, and I think we've done a pretty good job, as you say, with the adaptive reuse. But we still, every year, we lose really important buildings in town. It's a shame. It's a shame, and I do hope that we can start to look at some of the great successes of that adaptive reuse. You mentioned Central Station. That's another one. Um, the Arrive Hotel that was in the former MCA grad school. I, whatever it was before that, I, th I hope we can look at some of these successes and and be inspired to save other buildings in that same way. I haven't been in the Arise Hotel yet, but I hear it is uh, is really a cool space. 
It is. It really is. And, you know, I go to some of these other cities and these kind of historic buildings that become hotels or they call them third places. It's not your home. It's not your work. It's the other place you go to hang out. They have bars. They have coffee shops. It's where everybody wants to have a meeting when you're going um, to visit another city. And it's been so great to see Memphis have those places. Uh, the new Memphis Chess Club downtown um, in the Tooth Building that just opened last week is another example. Um, so it's great to have places that we will be able to hang out in in the future. When, when we can hang out again, right. which we all hope is soon. Um, so, uh, well, that's that's pretty that's pretty cool. How so how does how did you have the awakening to know that because um, being an architect is is very creative. And, and so it's the same kind of uh, a lot of the same kind of talents that a writer uses. How did you have that awakening to know that I, I'm, I'm not so much interested in, in this, but I, my, my passion really is writing? Well, you know, it's it was mostly these foundational kind of courses that you're taking when you're getting a degree in art because architecture in the School of Art and the writing classes I was taking early on, I was really connecting with those and really seeing how I was using that writing as a communication um, and more graphic design rather than buildings or structure focused in communicating even my architecture presentations. All of my art projects were um, leaning towards that uh, side of things. And so I said, I'm just, I'm not gonna fight this. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with it and I was a little bit worried because you know you're like oh a writer and an artist like what what is that you know am I where am I gonna <laughs> work what you know starving artists and all that all that jazz but um, I didn't really think about the way that social media and because that was just starting out I think Facebook um, started the year before I started college so I started college in 2005 and we were one among the first people to use Facebook um, I didn't really think about the way that writing and communication in that way would really be that career could go into social media as much as it did and online writing. Like I said, I've always do, been doing newsletters. I had a newsletter in high school saying, here's what's going on at school. It was unofficial, by the way. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's it's amazing. Uh, it's always interesting to me uh, to learn how people navigate through that because uh, you know sometimes we get these things in our mind. Oh, I'm I'm going to go in in this direction. For me, it was I'm I'm I wanted to be a high school speech coach, and um, uh, I realized that I didn't have I didn't quite have the the skill set when it came to patience and other things uh, for that and. How you go from that to being from being a, a, a theater? I went from being a theater major my first uh, semester to political science, and um, everybody has a story like that. So uh, it's very interesting, and it's it's sad when people aren't able to make that that leap into what they really really are passionate about, and they find themselves in a in a profession or a job that that they're 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 just not happy with. Right, I agree. And it was definitely, I haven't thought about this in a long time, but it was definitely, frankly, terrifying as a 20 year old to say, I'm going to make this huge left turn kind of in my life, but I did it. And um, I do think that people should be open to continuing to change. I mean, I've had to learn so many 
new skills. And again, with the social media, that stuff changes every single day. It's a full-time job to keep up with it. Um, I will say one of the major things that helped me kind of get my foot in the door in the industry of marketing and communication, journalism, is that I did get two degrees. I studied graphic design and I studied writing. And I had the first few jobs I had that was specifically told, we hired you because you could do more than one job. Now we can talk about if that how cool that is or how not cool that is. Um, but you know, at the commercial appeal, they were saying, no, oh, yeah, you can help us write some of this advertising content and you can help us design ads. So you can kind of do it all. And I didn't really do that intentionally, but I was very grateful for the opportunity and definitely studying those two different fields. I don't do as much in the graphics now, but having that background has proved invaluable. Well, content certainly is king uh, at every, uh, uh, in, in just about every profession. I mean, everybody is having to, to generate content uh, online or for their website or, or whatnot. And um, there's just a lot more opportunity for that, for those skills than there were, say, when I was getting out of college in the late 80s. Uh, it just wasn't as much outlet for content. Right, exactly. And Content is king and can't make it fast enough. <laughs> I, I remember when um, uh, the internet was first really becoming commercial uh, on a, in a mainstream level. And I'm, I'm gonna say maybe, you know, maybe the mid to late nineties. And uh, I figured that the newspapers would own uh, the internet because they had so much content. And it's, it's a shame that it took a lot of newspapers um, so long uh, to, to adapt that it, really kind of drove a lot of them under. Yeah, that was, you know, something I witnessed a little bit of when I was at the CA, but it's, it has been unfortunate to see local news kind of struggle in that way. Um, and a lot's been said about it, but um, we've seen a lot of other news outlets and locally focused news outlets and information outlets pop up and some are good and some are bad, but I think we have some great ones in Memphis. I agree, and I think it's it's a matter of of a transition, and hopefully, uh, every day, every year, it'll get stronger, because I think that's one thing we're lacking in Memphis. With all due respect to the Commercial Appeal and the Daily Memphian, and I love Memphis and and all of the the news sources, um, there just doesn't seem to be as many people um, reporting on Memphis local. Uh, the Memphis local government and political scene as there used to be. And I really think that's important to hold government accountable. Uh, Ursula Madden and the folks that, that I used to work with at the city uh, uh, think that there's, there, there is a lot of interest and she'd probably take exception to that. But um, I just think it's important for uh, the jur journalists to, to be there and to be active and, and for the community to consume it because uh, our government is best when it's accountable and it's accountable when people know what's going on. In order for the people who own the lets to invest in those journalists, um, that people are gonna have to go read your article about the city council, they're gonna have to follow you. That you're right, the city does have to wanna consume it. So it's that's kind of tug of war between, are we willing to make this investment? Um, so hopefully, hopefully we are, hopefully we do. Yeah. yeah. Well, who are some of the people that uh, helped you along the way that were your mentors or influencers that uh, looking back now, you think, man, I, if it hadn't been for her, or if it hadn't been for him, 
uh, I wouldn't be where I am now. Well, I think everybody has that high school teacher that they really connected with. Um, they, you know, you're in high school, everyone's a little bit lost trying to figure out who you are. And then there's that teacher that comes in and says, hey, this is great. And so I had a teacher like that, um, Miss Clark, our English teacher at Oak Grove High School. Um, she had a couple of different classes that were really off the beaten path. I think she called them humanities, but it was a chance for us to sit and read and write and discuss and um, she really helped me say it's okay, you know, you're, you have your voice and to write in your voice. And so that was so helpful. And then at the University of Memphis, um, and she's still a friend of mine when I get to see her, um, my writing professor, Jan Coleman, um, is just an amazing person. She's a writer herself, um, and she taught creative nonfiction. Uh, which is essentially just most of the things that you read now on the internet or in magazines, but I had never heard that term before. Um, and so she was really dedicated to sort of teaching that field, which is what I, my focus ended up being in. And she was really encouraging saying, you can, you can actually do this, you know, like, I know you think you're just getting a degree, but you could actually write and make a living doing it if you tried. And, you know, you need to have somebody to say that to you sometimes. Um, so those two people were so encouraging. And then there's so many people in Memphis um, as I have managed and edited the I Love Memphis blog that have been so supportive, whether they were sending me story ideas or just telling me that they appreciated it. Sometimes it can be a little bit lonely when you're sitting at your computer writing <laughs> all day and then just to have people reach out and say, oh, hey, I just moved to Memphis and I saw your blog and it really helped me find something to do or find my community um, or, you know, I'm, I'm moving to Memphis because my wife got a job and I don't have any idea what's going on and I'm a little concerned because I don't know anything about the city and your blog helped me or even people who say I've been here a million years and I've never heard of this festival or this uh, place to go. And so just getting that positive feedback lets me know um, doing a good job and definitely couldn't do it without all the readers and people that that support I Love Memphis. So they have influenced me as a group as well. Well, let's talk about I Love Memphis. Uh, now, you, what year did you take over the blog? 2013. So October 2013. Oh, okay. So happy anniversary. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks. <laughs> so um, when you took over, uh, first day on the job, uh, what was your did you get a sense for where you wanted to take it at that point? Or we, how, how did you decide how you were going to put the Holly stamp on it after it had been started by such a, uh, you know, well-known dynamic person? Right. That was definitely a challenge. And it was something I think the people at Memphis Tourism were actually more worried about than, than I was worried about, understandably um, and rightly so. And anytime you're going through that transition, you're saying, we started this blog in 2009 at a time when it was kind of like, girl on the street, here's my, not my diary, but here's my, you know, daily log, my blog. Um, it was very personal. There was a lot of personal photos and that really worked for that time. And so me looking at the blog and reading it for a few years before I even got the job, as I went through the internet 
inter, not internet, interview process and kind of seeing where the trends were going with blogs and online communication, I had a couple of ideas and the direction I wanted to go. And so I kind of proposed those as part of my interview process. And they were mostly saying, we need to expand this beyond the I in I Love Memphis shouldn't be just Carrie. It shouldn't be just Holly. Of course, people will associate me with the blog and hopefully learn to trust my my recommendations, but they need to see themselves in that eye. And so we kind of need to expand this a little bit. So you may see less selfies, less um, kind of my daily life and more connecting with other Memphians and getting a few years to accomplish, but it did work out was to bring on other writers and other contributors. And so now we kind of have a regular list of, uh, I like to call them blog contributors, they're freelancers, they're writers, whatever you want to call them. So it's not just my voice. And I hope to continue to always be expanding that and bringing uh, talented professional writers in. We always can have guest, guest bloggers, but bringing in people who really um, are a part of the team and are compensated to write with us is so important to me. And then also to redesign the website and online presence and bring it up to speed. So those are the main things that I wanted to do when I started and I'm happy to say that most of them have been accomplished um, so far and we've gone on to other things as well but this is a this is an industry that's constantly changing um, and so being able to keep up with that is you know that's where I'm at right now is just staying up to date on everything that's happening whether it's learning how to do Instagram reels um, or bringing in more video content, even though I'm a writer, <laughs> uh, you know, we gotta, we gotta stay on our toes and keep evolving. And then of course this year has been an extra challenge with that, but I definitely knew I wanted to make that I in I Love Memphis more collective and the feedback we've gotten shows that for the most part, we've been able to do that. Well, uh, but let me digress in just a second. Uh, Cause that brings up an interesting point, kind of the future of blogging um, if, uh, if I've got a listener who's uh, got a business, either a new business or an existing business, and they're thinking about getting into blogging, where do you think commercial blogging is going over the next, uh, you know, two or three years? Well, people are much more tied to their apps and their social media and their email apps than they are going to websites. So while you definitely need that backbone of a website, it may not necessarily need to be a straightforward blog I'm posting every day or every week or every month. Um, you're gonna need to be across multiple platforms, I guess is the main thing that's gonna be. What those platforms are depends on your industry and depends on you know what we're, how things change. But I would definitely say you can't just be a blogger um, you're going to need to reach your readers and your audience through their email inboxes. You need to include your content on social media, on whatever channel um, to do. And that's what I think is the way that we're really heading. Again, you always want to have that website um, where people can go and really get that information, those resources. But we're going to have to find new ways um, to reach people where they are as they're scrolling their phones um, or going on YouTube or Twitch. I'm doing a Twitch live stream later today and learning about that, which is a well-established platform at this point. I just haven't done it yet because there's a limited number of hours in the day. Uh, 
So do you think video is is increasingly going to become more important than than written posts or do you think there's room for both? I think there's absolutely room for both. I think we saw over the last few years the importance of video was overstated greatly. Um, you know, Facebook kind of pulled the wool over our eyes with that, really exaggerating how important those video views were. I think now it really depends on your content. Like again, content is king. What is the best way to communicate to this? Like I think uh, we had talked at one point before we did this podcast that some people are listening to it. Other people may have this video recording on in the background of whatever they're doing. And especially as people are staying at home too, they may have video stuff on, but they're not necessarily sitting down to take in every single second of that video. And so that's when you're going to have people that want to read and they want to get all the details and they want to get in depth. So it's going to depend on your content, but um, there's, there's got to be room for both. There's definitely room for both. I will always read a story over watch a video, um, but that's my personal preference. So you kind of have to make a judgment call there. Yeah, I think at least in terms of our business, I think the video kind of, uh, I don't know, kind of hooks people and then they want to, to, to dive down deeper in, you know, if they want to really learn about, you know, an issue, um, they'll read about it as opposed to just watch a bunch of, of videos. But, and some people, all they want to do is watch videos. So uh, you really have to have content out there for everybody. Exactly. Yeah, um, I think that's a good point. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, how, I mean, I hate to ask this question because it's kind of, uh, it's kind of uh, the, uh, it's kind of, it's my, my son would say it's kind of chalk, you know, it's, it's, everybody asks a pandemic question these days, but how, how has the pandemic uh, uniquely affected your blog and, and tourism in Memphis? Well, I don't know how uniquely it's affected tourism in Memphis because tourism across the world has been very negatively affected, of course. And I think, you know, 2019 for tourism in Memphis, the number of visitors was our best year. Um, we were really excited going into 2020. And I think hotel occupancy this summer was about 50%, which is not awful, awful, but it's certainly much lower than we would have anticipated. Uh, so it's, it's been rough. I'm not, I'm not going to lie in terms of tourism. It's been rough for the people who work in our hotels and attractions as well. I know there's been a lot of changes there as we're all trying to figure out how to gear up and make it through the rest of the year. And, you know, safety is the most important and safety comes first. And so it's kind of this um, in between of saying, hey, this is what we do have to offer if you are making the decision to travel. And these are kind of the safe things you can do. But if you are not traveling right now, we also understand and remember us for the future. Uh, love, keep loving Memphis. Um, and so that's kind of where the blog has come in, you know, immediately what happened um, when this started in March is that there is a huge increase in information getting put out there. And I remember it was kind of exhausting uh, for a while just to keep up with all the changes, what's the latest phase we're on, what's the latest directive, all that stuff. And so as a blog that provides information about the city and that people look to as a resource, normally I'm talking about fun stuff like 
when are the Grizzlies games? You know, what's open for brunch? What's new? I really was like, but people still see us as a general resource as well. And so I kind of had to pivot a little bit and talk and just give some real facts that weren't necessarily that fun, uh, that fun kind of vibe that I normally stick with, but it was still really important. Um, I never stopped writing five things to do in Memphis this weekend, which is definitely our most popular content. Um, even in the middle of the pandemic, I never stopped uh, coming up with ways, even when all five ideas were either at home or virtual or takeout. Um, I have had people in the last few weeks say, man, I can't wait till you start doing those weekend guides again when everything starts happening. And I said, hey, I know we all kind of shut down and, and thought that everything was over, but Memphians and organizations in Memphis have been so creative and and really smart in coming up with ways to do that virtual event thing or socially distanced or whatever it may be, take home dinners and that sort of thing. Um, and so I'm just trying to promote those things that people are working so hard to change. And so it's not all, it's not all over, like everything isn't canceled. We're just doing things a little differently. Um, so it's been a challenge, but I've tried to keep that same positive mindset that people love about the blog, even as I'm giving not so great info all the time. You know, I, you brought up a really good point. I think that the, particularly the Memphis restaurant community has done a, a fabulous job of adapting and not rushing in um, to try to reopen everything, uh, even when they could. A lot of the restaurants really held back and said, we're gonna do this the safe way. And I think that's one of the reasons why our numbers in comparison to a lot of metro areas uh, are, are still down and not as bad as they could be. And I think that's a real testament to the creativity and responsibility of the restaurant industry in Memphis. I really agree. And then there's a campaign that I Love Memphis is heavily involved in and from Memphis tourism, but it's it's all of us rally for restaurants. You've probably seen it. We've got some billboards and stuff up to draw attention to the exact thing that you're saying that they still need, the restaurants still need our support. Our food industry workers still need our support and they've worked really hard to do exactly like you said. Yeah, it's been a great excuse to uh, uh, to do my civic duty and eat out, uh, or at least uh, 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 <laughs> take out from restaurants as opposed to cook at home. Um, and I tell you another thing that, I mean, if you're looking at silver linings, one thing that I think uh, this pandemic did in Memphis is I think Memphians and probably folks all across the, the country have rediscovered alfresco dining. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we've seen a lot of restaurants really decide that they have to invest in that and figure that out. Um, patios have always been super popular in Memphis, but I think it's mostly a certain crowd. And so now I think it's kind of everybody is, is figuring out how they can enjoy um, the outdoors. And now uh, this time of year is like my favorite time of year uh, for, for weather. I know some people are like, oh, it's getting cold, but I think it's it's gorgeous out. So it's the perfect time if you're not normally an alfresco diner to take advantage of that. Even if you're still not wanting to go inside of a dining room, you can do that. Or you can get your food to go and go to one of our many beautiful outdoor spaces and kind of make your own alfresco. That's true. And and I've my wife and I have been uh, been doing that around our house. And uh, uh, we really would like to uh, install a, kind of an outdoor dining uh, area 
for that for that reason. And you know, a lot of a lot of uh, uh, places never lost that. Of course, Memphis. I always say, I when I was in college or law school, I had a convertible, and uh, it was about four weeks a year you could actually have the top down in Memphis, and it'd be <laughs> you know great. And that's kind of the way it is with with outdoor dining. Although you know, a lot of restaurants have gotten creative with fans and mists and all kinds of things to make it comfortable. So I, I'm, you know, I'm just glad to see that because uh, I think it's a it's a neat way to do it. Um, and um, what do you think, you know, kind of before, during, and after COVID? I mean, all of that aside, um, as a, someone who didn't grow up here, what do you think it, it is about Memphis that, you know, that really makes Memphis Memphis? <laughs> I know a lot of people talk about that underdog spirit, but that is true in Memphis to an extent. Um, for whatever reason, we we kind of get bad mouthed by people, whether in the city or outside of the city. And so we kind of have to take a little more time to search for what we each love about the city. And that makes that love even more authentic and real to me. It's not just saying, oh yeah, we're the cool place to go or we're the most popular place for a bachelorette party. We're really digging in and saying, look at all these passionate people, whether they're working in entrepreneurs or nonprofits or arts, there's a lot of really passionate people in Memphis um, that are here because they want to be here, not because they think it's the cool place to be, although I would argue that it definitely is. Um, and so it's kind of got that extra step of realness and people have to work just a smidge harder. Um, and that's definitely gotten better over the years. And that's a big part of what the I Love Memphis blog's mission is. But yeah, that's what I love about the city is people are, are real. We kind of have a, a little bit more relaxed vibe than some of the places I go. Um, and people are genuinely wanting to connect with each other for the most part. And that's, that's really special to me. Um, and that's, that's why I love Memphis is mostly the people. Well, I think, I think you're right. That's, that's certainly, I'm, uh, unlike you, I'm, I'm native Memphian. Um, I've left a couple of times for school and, uh, uh for work for about a year, but I, I think a lot of people who leave and come back really realize that. There's Memphis has got a lot going for it. And, um, you know, it's its own thing. Uh, and it's not Austin. It's not Nashville. It's not Birmingham or Atlanta. And thank God, because they're already, there's already an uh, Austin, Nashville, Birmingham, Atlanta. And so the world needs a Memphis. And uh, uh, I just, you know, it, it's funny. I'd be interested in your perspective on this. Um, but I can go anywhere and, and, say I'm from Memphis and almost inevitably the, the person I'm talking to uh, starts to smile and they've got a positive association with Memphis, whether it's Elvis or barbecue, or um, I just had a, you know, I just had a great night one night on, on Beale street, listening to the music. Um, uh, Memphis is a, is a world famous city. Whenever I, I do travel or whenever my colleagues travel, it's generally, generally what we find, um, people have a positive association with the city. So it's interesting to sometimes contrast the outsider perspective from some people who have lived here for a long time, that they're kind of maybe negative perspective. I call it the hometown, what did I call it? I called it like the hometown conundrum where wherever you're from, you're kind of over it at a certain point or you're over parts of it. Um, so it's not all just Memphis, but yeah, um, it's been really cool also in the last few years to see, especially the international community, 
um, and certain places really fall in love with Memphis. I mean, Australians love Memphis. There's something about that like rock and roll, rockabilly, something that really resonates the soul, you know, that really resonates with them. And so we've seen like a huge increase in, um, or we had seen a huge increase in people from Australia coming. And that's just fun. That's just a fun thing um, to have watched happen. Well, I, I, I've got to talk about your, your book, Secret Memphis, which I, got, which I got a hold of over the weekend and um, had just had a really, really uh, good time looking through it. Uh, there was, you know, I, there were things in here, of course I knew, but there were so many things in here uh, I read that I, I mean, I said, I didn't know that. Um, <laughs> so I, I'm going to give it a shameless plug. Holly didn't ask me to do this. But if you haven't read this, um, uh, I'm sure uh, you can get it wherever good uh, good books are sold. Um, novel, does, I, I'm guessing Novel has this? Yes, I believe all the local bookstores like Burke's Novel, South Main Book Juggler, all have it. Um, and you can also get signed copies at secretmemphis.com. So those okay. are coming directly from me. So whichever is easiest for you. Um, uh, that you know might be a good investment to buy a signed copy because Holly's going to be even more famous someday and this was a collector's <laughs> item but I, I really did enjoy um reading it tell me how you how it, it's it's a natural thing for someone like you to write a book like this but how did it how did it come about well thank you so much for that shameless plug and I love hearing that you enjoyed it um it has been a joy to hear from people who got this book which came out at the end of May was not expecting to release my first book in a pandemic, but for people to have some joy and some fun during this time with the book has been great. So the book is published by Reedy Press, which is actually based in St. Louis, but their mission is to find locals from different cities in the United States to tell the stories of their own city. And so the secret series is actually something that they've been working on for a few years and they have other cities in the US that you know, Secret Austin, Secret Nashville have been out. And I was thinking that there needs to be a Secret Memphis because we have so many stories to tell. And so they kind of reached out to me to see if I would be interested in filling the Memphis sized hole that they had in their secret series. Um, and they had done worked with some other local authors for some of their other titles, 100 Things to Do in Memphis Before You Die by Samantha Crespo is one that uh, another writer in Memphis I know. She had nothing but great things to say about them. So I did decide to work with them and it took me about a year to write. It was a learning experience um, for sure. I'll tell you that it's a challenge to have a full-time job and then also write a book um but again it's that passion for memphis and memphians and all the people i got to see and interview and all the places i got to go because i did take almost all the photos in the book myself um which was another fun and challenging part of it um but yeah so i worked on the book for about a year definitely expected to have a big blowout party with all my friends and family and everyone i'd ever met um, did not get to have that, but that's okay because, like I said, it's it has been sort of this um, resource for people. There's a lot of outdoor things and sort of drive-by things to do in the book, um, which if I didn't really explain, Seeker Memphis is a, a selection of about 90 stories, short stories um, that talk about the weird, the wonderful, and obscure. And like you said, if you're a longtime Memphian, you're going to be familiar with maybe most of them. 
but you're not necessarily going to know the full story behind them. And so that was my goal to surprise you with some things you didn't know. And then to tell you the surprising story behind some of the things that you had heard of. Well, I'm not going to ask you what your favorite one is because that's not really fair, but um, is there something that you had the most fun uh, dealing with it, with the, with the book, a story that you really just had fun with? Yes. Um, well, so the Sex Pistols Taco Bell, you know, that's the name of the story. So that's really fun to say and to talk about. Um, <laughs> you'll have to get the book and read it. Um, but the one I actually had the most fun and completely nerded out on when I was writing um, was the Chickasaw Heritage Park, which most people know is the mounds or the Chickasaw Mounds. And that whole little area of Memphis next to the Metal Museum um, and the Marine Hospital. And I knew that those places were there. I had a general idea of what the mounds were. I knew that they were left from our indigenous peoples that were the first Memphians, but I didn't really realize the full story. And there's a plaque there that talks about how Hernando de Soto comes through and the Chickasaw people are literally there at that exact place in like using the mounds as a fortress and they see him coming and they interact with him and all of that. And I'm like, that sounds made up. That sounds not real. I mean, I'm sure that like that happened sort of in some way, um, but then I got really curious. And so I started to try to find like the source of that plaque and the source of the source of that plaque and the source of the source of that. And using Google Books in the library, I went all the way back um, to a book written by a Portuguese explorer who was like, it was like a secondhand story of that expedition. And so I just spent hours and hours on this one story, just kind of confirming that that really is what happened. And that history really did happen at that exact spot. And then, you know, all the good and bad that came from that, the trail of tears then came through Memphis later and the descendants of those same people lived there had to be forcibly removed. Um, but then we also have this incredible metal museum, which is one of the last remaining blacksmithing artist programs in the country. So it's kind of that mix of, um, you know, history is difficult, but inspiring. And that whole story was so interesting to me, and especially how everything is just right there. So if you haven't been to the Chickasaw Mounds, definitely go. As far as I can tell, the plaque is real, um, the story is real. Um, so that's kind of my favorite one. Well, very good. Well, uh, so what's what's next for the I Love Memphis blog and and uh, Holly Whitfield? Well, I'm going to keep writing about Memphis because, as I've said before, you can write every day, all day, and you're probably never going to cover everything. Um, and people are doing new stuff all the time, especially in the arts in Memphis. Um, definitely want to cover more of that. But I don't know if I've mentioned this in public yet or not, but we are working on a new design for the website for Isle of Memphis blog that's going to make it a lot easier for people to find information. After 10 plus years, there's a lot of information on that site and sometimes in there it can be overwhelming. So we want people to be able to find things and search for things easier. Um, so that's coming in the next few weeks. We've been working on that for like a year and I haven't really made a public announcement yet. So maybe this is breaking news, but breaking news uh, on the, breaking news. the podcast. Yes, yeah, so right, we yeah. might have a shiny new website coming soon. Um, and other than that, we're going to just keep evolving and keep up with the latest and hope that 2021 allows us to see each other a little more often. Amen to that. 
what's the best way that uh, someone can subscribe to the to the blog or, or get uh, posts regularly? So you can go to ilovememphisblog.com slash subscribe, put in your email, and then every time we have a new article, you'll get a sample of that in your inbox. It's really simple. So ilovememphisblog.com slash subscribe. And then of course, like I said, a lot of people like to scroll through social media. I'm on all the social media platforms. So if you follow me on those, or if you select notifications so that mean algorithm doesn't hide our beautiful Memphis content from you, <laughs> then you can see it. Um, I definitely will say people can support the blog by going to the blog, ilovememphisblog.com. I know we all do like to scroll, but there's a lot of great stuff there. And I do get a feedback from people saying, oh man, I wish there was a guide to tacos or where's the best taco trucker? Where's the best um, you know, place to take my kids? And all of that is on the blog. So feel free to ask me, um, but also feel free to search and go directly to the website. There's a lot of great stuff there. If you're looking for something in Memphis, it's probably there. Um, well, that, that sounds like a definitive so statement. That, that's a story on that. <laughs> all right. Well, that sounds like a definitive statement. Go do that. We'll, we have, uh, we'll put, uh, all that information up, uh, periodically throughout this podcast. So the people, uh, will know where to, where to go. Uh, and I can say it really is a, a great resource, uh, for Memphis, uh, use it. If you're a Memphian, use it. If you know people from out of town who are coming here, refer them to it. Uh, it's just, uh, it's a great thing for our city to have. And again, the book is Secret Memphis and uh, just a, uh, a great fun read um, to learn a little bit about your town. Uh, so I highly recommend it. Thank Holly, you so again, much. it's it just been wonderful uh, uh, chatting with you. I really appreciate it. Yes, thanks so much for having me and talking about the blog and the book. I really appreciate it. Very good. Well, this is uh, this episode of Ask Alan. Please uh, follow us on social media. If you've enjoyed this, please email or forward it to, uh, to a friend who you think might uh, benefit from it. And uh, we'll see you next time on Ask Alan, the podcast. Thank you.